Maybe you felt chills or goosebumps. Perhaps it's an overwhelmed feeling of something bigger than you or more complex. Whatever the feeling, God put the response in your soul as a reminder of His presence, power, and glory. It's called awe, and He wants to remind us of it every day in many ways. Join us as we discover how God has used His awe to inspire others to follow Him deeper in their lives. Today on In Awe by Bruce, we are blessed to have Jeff Kinley. Jeff has a master's in theology from Dallas Theological Seminary. He has pastored churches of all sizes, written over 30 books, is a nationally known speaker, and has been featured on TV and radio interviews such as Fox and Friends and The Ben Shapiro Show. And the key to all this is his passion around communicating God's vintage truth to this generation. He started to do that through his ministry called Main Thing Ministries. Jeff, welcome to the podcast. Bruce, good to be with you, man. I love your passion about the things you're into. I wanted to start off with the words you use, vintage truth. Why do you say vintage truth to this generation? What's missing? That's a great question. You know, I um, for 10 years, I pastored a, a church plant in my historic neighborhood in Little Rock, Arkansas, and mm -hmm. uh, we just basically rented out a facility and and just said, let's see who comes. And in came all these unchurched people, people that were longing for something that was real and true. Hmm. And they're mostly in the kind of the millennial and, you know, Gen X, Gen Z kind of generation. But they were, they really wanted me to teach the Bible to them. And wow. uh, which is something you don't normally hear about. You know, you think people just want you to, to put on a show or to kind of, you know, be funny or entertaining or whatever. They said, no, no, we want you to shoot straight with us. Give us God's truth. And wow. so really out of that, you know, came really my passion. And in terms of, of reaching this generation, I was a youth pastor for many, many years. And I discovered that in youth ministry, if you don't explain the Bible in a language that they can understand, kind of like a good missionary, then mm -hmm. they just walk on you. You know, I mean, they just they don't even come back. Right. Right. And so when these people started coming uh, to this church, um, I began to think about, you know, what do I want this church to be? What's really the thrust, the mission of this church? And so my wife and I came up with this name, and we call the church Vintage Next, NXT, huh. Vintage Next. And the idea of the church was it was God's vintage truth, vintage Christianity for the next generation. Huh. And so the, the vintage part really kind of anchors it to the scripture. It says, hey, it never changes. It's always, you know, as relevant as ever. But next gives it the, the tilt and how we communicate it to that next generation. So that's really always been my passion uh, just uh, from uh, my days in youth ministry is um, really proclaiming God's truth in a language that people can understand. That made me think of diverting to the book on the coming apostasy. Maybe you give the example of Coke and Pepsi that you give in there. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's kind of like, the, you know, when they tried to change the, the formula to Coke, I remember that when that came out, we had Coke mm -hmm. Classic and then we had New Coke. And it was just a colossal bomb because people <laughs> loved the old Coke. I mean, they loved it. It's like the old saying we have in the South, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, you know, mm -hmm. and, and it wasn't broke. And so Coke spent uh, untold millions in developing this new drink. And yet they discovered that people were really, they just wanted more of the same of what they got in the very beginning. I think Christianity is like that, mm -hmm. is that when you try to doctor it up, when you try to water it down, when you try to add more flavors to it and kind of repackage it in a way that just is totally unrecognizable, people just go, you know, I think I like the the original natural beauty of, mm -hmm. of the original product, you know, if you will. And that to me, Bruce, has been what 
has kind of penetrated through some of the um, uh, the methods and the churchianity and the ways that we have tried so hard to get the world to like us. And mm-hmm. uh, and God is just saying, look, just give them the truth. Some people are going to be attracted. Some people are going to not be attracted. But that's not our job. Our job is to simply speak the truth in love and to do it in the language that people understand. And so don't change the original formula. That, that's fabulous. I, love that. I was one of those people that complained about Coke changing. So, <laughs> <laughs> Right, right. Based upon what you just said, giving them the true Christianity, the not changing, not flavoring it, what do you see as key areas where we've gone off the path or maybe we've emphasized things too much that we're trading in that vintage for something else? And I think it boils down to just the um, the practice of w- what we call pragmatism. In other words, if it works, let's do it. Mm-hmm. And in the world of church and the world of ministry, there are many things that really do work. I mean, I've told people in the past that if you want to get a crowd together, I can get you a crowd together. That's not really the problem. It's easy to get a crowd. and You simply promise them what they already want and mm-hmm. then just try to deliver it to them. But what's happened is, is that we have to ask ourselves the question, what are we producing? What are we actually making here in this in this environment we call the church? And so a lot of churches and some whole denominations in certain parts of the country have really compromised the the message of the gospel. They've tried to reinvent it for a new generation. And sort of mm-hmm. that kind of ties into what, what some theologians call progressive theology and the idea that God himself is evolving and you can't trust a 2,000-year-old collection of letters and and document and that kind of thing. And so we've kind of like jettisoned some things about the faith. And I think it falls down in basically two different categories. It falls in the category of doctrine and in the category of morality. Mm -hmm. And in the areas of doctrine, Bruce, I think one of the things we've done is we basically, we've chipped away at the foundations of what we believe about the Bible. Whereas instead of saying the Bible is inerrant and fallible, it's actually God's word and it's binding on our lives today. We've kind of said, well, we'll pick and choose which parts we think are still relevant, and then we'll redefine the parts that that are still there that kind of sound archaic or or out of date. Mm -hmm. Uh, But what that does is that it really calls into question all of the Bible, because if I can't trust one part of the Bible, how do I know that I can really trust the other part? Mm -hmm. And who am I to sort of pick out the parts that are legit and the parts that are no longer applicable, you know? So I think doctrinally we've done that. We, we've done that in the area of just believing what the Bible says. Uh, and then over into morality, you know, you get into areas like homosexuality and homosexual marriage. Uh, mm. You get into other questionable doctrines. And then also just the whole idea that the church today and society has really redefined Christian values to mean something that they did not formally mean. In other words, Satan is hijacking things like love and tolerance mm. and justice and mercy and all these great doctrines that really Christians, that comes from the Judeo-Christian tradition, but we today are redefining those in order to accommodate a new generation of people that are living in sin. Mm-hmm. So that I see that as part of the apostasy, which is really a falling away from the standard 
And if you will, if you put it in sports terms, it'd be like people yeah. saying, well, the boundaries are no longer the boundaries. You can run up in the stands if you want to. And, and if you, you know, you get to the 20 yard line, just call it a touchdown if you want to. Cause yeah. if you feel that way and you identify as a person who scored a touchdown, then it must be a touchdown then. And we have to validate that in you and far be it from us to tell you that you didn't score a touchdown. So you don't really need any referees anymore. Everybody just plays the game how they want to. So that's kind of some of the ways that, uh, that I see us deteriorating and disintegrating the message of God's mm. word. So flesh out for us a little bit more an example of like love, because you do a good job of that in your book. Let people hear when you say, how are people changing love? You know, basically the, the mantra of today is love is love. Mm. Love is love, which is kind of like, like a circular argument there. In order to understand what love is, you have to understand where love came from and who invented the idea of love. And of course, the Bible says that God is love. The Bible doesn't say love is love. And this whole validation of whatever I feel towards another person or thing or animal or object or even myself has exploded into, really, it's it's taken away the entire meaning of love, that there is no standard for love. It's just whatever you happen to feel in your heart. So if I feel love for two different women, then that must be love. If I feel love mm. for an underage child, then that must be love. You know, if I feel love for an object or, or even an animal or even to marry myself, I mean, the people are marrying themselves now. And so they've redefined what love is. But in order to know what love is, you have to go to the source of love. And the Bible tells us that, that God himself has created love. And then he outlines the parameters of this is what love looks like. And these are the contexts in which love can be expressed in a, in a marriage relationship. So mm -hmm. it really opens up Pandora's box, Bruce. If you, if you just say love is love, yeah. then anything is love, then whatever you think is love. And so we really can't pass judgment or, or condemn the actions of someone if they just pull that card out of their wallet and say, no, no, it says here love is love. So that's one of the ways that we've done that. And of course, that negates everything that the Bible says about what love really is. I just did a Bible study recently where it kind of shocked people, but I was giving them the numbers on polyamorism, having multiple loves, and it's okay. You could love a guy and love a woman and love something else. And it was surprising, I think, the pew figures for the people that were Christians that said that that was okay was, was over 30%. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's actually not surprising to me because the amount of, of biblical illiteracy today in the church is just phenomenal. You talk about a pandemic. There's a pandemic of biblical literacy in the church. And I think it was Barna, yeah, it was Barna who said that, um, came to the conclusion that 19% of Christians or churchgoers read their Bible every day. Another 18% read it once a week and 20% never read it at all. Uh. And so when you've got that kind of biblical literacy, plus you add on to the fact that a lot of preachers are not preaching the Bible. Mm -hmm. uh, they're preaching, you know, either moralizing sermons or feel good or self-help seminars or whatever. Then you've got a whole generation of church people that don't know their Bible. Well, if you don't know the Bible, then you're not going to be able to discern what is really right or what is really wrong out there in the world. Mm -hmm. You may get some of it right, but you're not going to be able to really go between what is best and what is good. And of course, when the entire world is telling you one thing, and then here's this minority over here in the church, or God says, no, no, that's wrong, or this is right in its place. You've got to be willing to stand up like a Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did, and just say, you know, I'm willing to go against, against the, the course of the entire nation mm. if it means that I'm going to maintain my integrity and honor before God. 
And yet that requires a lot of confidence. And where does that confidence come from? It comes from being in the word. So, uh, so it kind of, you know, it's, it's a self-defeating experience when you're not fed, then you're not strong. And when you're not strong, you can't stand. Well, is, is that what you'd say is the, is the thing that scares you the most with what you're seeing in this generation as well as America, or is there even something else more? Well, there are two things. As far as it relates to the church, yes. The the thing that I see is I travel around, I talk to Christians, and I have contact with Christians really all over the world. The thing that is traumatizing is the fact that Christians don't know their Bible. And when they don't know their Bible, and I'm not just talking about just learning facts about the Bible, I'm talking about really engaging and, and being you know, in the Word, having the Word into us. When we don't know Scripture, then we don't know the God of Scripture. And so therefore, we'll end up making false statements about God or about Jesus or about what Jesus would do in this situation or what we'll take Scripture out of context and use it to justify sin in mm-hmm. our world today. And so there, it's a domino effect. And you know, when you don't know Scripture, you don't know theology or doctrine or the character of God, and that informs literally everything that we do in the Christian life. So yeah. that's in the church. But then you look over in the world, And the world, as I wrote about in my book, as it was in the days of Noah, are really mimicking a day in which paganism and godlessness really ruled the era, ruled a generation. Mm -hmm. And we are fastly, fastly coming to that point to the extent that church attendance and churches are on a massive decline right now, and people are becoming more and more secular. In fact, uh, I think it was Barna who also said the greatest group of people today that are coming out of our generation is the nuns, the N-O-N-E-S. In other words, Uh, those who don't have any spiritual or religious affiliation whatsoever. Uh, Some 13 to 15 percent of teenagers now are now identifying as atheists. And so we've got a whole generation where the country, the culture, is not backing up even the most basic Judeo-Christian values that a generation ago were sort of given. It's like you could kind of depend upon the kid's the neighbor's parents to back up your own parenting or for mm-hmm. the school to back you up or for the government. But nowadays that's not a given anymore. So Christians really are swimming upstream. Uh, we're becoming more and more the minority and more marginalized, but much like the early century, a first century church was. Like you, you just said, if you've got to know God's word and in knowing God's word, that's where you fall in love with Jesus. Yes. And, and when you fall in love with somebody that is what impacts and motivates and guides and directs. And, and without doing that, it's, it's awful hard. Then, then you come up with the characterizations that you talked about in your book that people have of Jesus. And I interviewed Bob Fahey. I don't know if you know him. He wrote a book called Not My Jesus. Mm. And it has all these characters of characterizations of Jesus that people come up with just by what you're saying. They don't know God's word, so they create their own, and that's who their Jesus becomes. Well, exactly. And it, that's backed up in Scripture. You know, there's a, someone made a famous quote a few years ago that says, I don't do theology. I just love Jesus. <laughs> and my response to that was, well, which Jesus? Uh, yeah. It's the Jesus that's in the Bible. It's the, yeah. You can't love Jesus if you don't know who Jesus is. You can't worship a God that you don't know. And I think that's, that's the underpinnings of everything that is happening today mm. is that when people are not informed biblically and scripturally, they have no basis from which to make assertions or to make judgments or decisions in their lives or even to be able to know how to love people mm. in the world. And so when we abandon the, the foundations of our faith, then all that's left is, according to Romans 1, when we reject God, it's just the darkened speculations 
of our minds. And it's very interesting because, Bruce, because what happens is, is that when God actually says one of the consequences to us rejecting him is that we have sort of a, a spiritual blindness on our minds. And mm. it says we're forced to then speculate mm. about truth, about love, about origins, about sexuality, about relationships, about the world, about everything. And and yet the crazy thing about that is the irony is that even in our blindness and our ignorance, it says in the very next verse, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Yeah. And we still think we know more than God, even though God has allowed us to to have that blindness and, and that ignorance. And yet the only way to get that back is to come back uh, to God. And of course, that leads into all these other things in Romans 1, all the, the sexual sins and just the denial of God altogether. So it mm. really is a spiraling down of a de-evolution of mankind, really. When we reject God, everything else is up for grabs. Wow, true. I was just, my brain went to King Saul for some reason when you were mm. talking about that, because I think of him as there was a connection there with God, but he blew it off, yeah. and it ended up leading him to the witch mm -hmm. to try and bring Samuel back. And, you know, that, that's where God said, okay, your time's done. <laughs> a absolutely. And you know what's crazy is that if you think about it, if we're not biblically informed and grounded, we have no discernment, and that makes us functionally like children. Mm -hmm. uh, spiritually speaking. And, and as you know, a child will put anything in its mouth. Right. A, child, a right. child will touch anything. A child will put his finger in anything. I mean, he doesn't know because he has no discernment. And so he doesn't know that, you know, I can't eat this frog or whatever, you know, it is. Yeah. And so children just do that. And that's the nature of infancy is the nature of being a child. But as you grow as a human being, you learn, well, I can't eat that or I can't put my finger in the light socket or put my hand on the iron or whatever. You learn these things through discernment and through experience. And, and yet that's what we're not seeing enough of in the Christian church today is that level of discernment where, you know, Hebrews 5 says having their senses trained mm -hmm. to discern between good and evil. And it is a training process. I mean, it's a growth process and it's very it can be messy at times and it takes uh, generations, you know, sometimes to to get that full maturity. But God wants us to be there and he's a promise that he'll take us there if we'll just stick with him. Yeah. You mentioned in your book, I think, confession and and recognizing things you're doing wrong. And I think some people think, oh, if I do God's going to really nail me or anything. Well, God disciplines us, mm -hmm. but he does it out of love. Yes. He, he does it to train us, to help us grow up and, and understand him more and, and move from where we were to a new place. Uh, That's absolutely true. And, and, you know, the devil's very first lie that he ever told in the garden was to question the character of God and his goodness. That's right. And, uh, and that's what we're seeing the devil doing the same thing today. When we're afraid to just give it all to the Lord and just get that backpack of sin off of us and just say, Lord, I've got rotten cancer all throughout me, spiritually speaking. I need to be healed and touched by you. That's a that's a source of freedom. That's not slavery. That's freedom. And yet the devil will tell us, no, if you do that, then you're going to miss out on all these other things in life. And, and I've got a better way for you over here. Just go ahead and take this fruit. And the world is still offering, you know, that that tempting fruit to us in, in all sorts of ways in terms of self-medication, in terms of just pursuing our own pride or our lust or relationships or whatever. When God says, you'll find out who you really are if you'll just come to me. Mm. Wow, that is good. So as I'm thinking about that, how do you reach this generation so that they, they hear and are listening and, and grasp what you're saying? And that's a great question. And I think that the answer to that is that pretty much any option, any 
technological tool, any avenue of communication, I think is wide open as long as you're anchored to the Word of God. Because you see people that are, I just call them posers. You know, you see some of these people out there, they're like, well, I've got to shave the side of my head or wear a spiky hairdo or talk, you know, in some kind of crazy lingo and get people to think that I'm cool. And that's how I'm going to reach them. You know what? If you want to get your hair shaved, that's fine. But as long as you're anchored to the word, what I find though, Bruce, is a lot of people are just trying so hard to Mm -hmm. get non-Christians to like them that that they have really, they're just bypassing the fact that once they get them to like them, they really have nothing to tell them. There's uh, no real substance to their message. Okay. And I, I learned this in, in student ministry. As I look back, even at the ministry of Jesus, I saw where, yes, he fed the 5,000. He did signs and wonders and miracles. He healed people. And even you read about in John chapter 6, after he does all those things, Jesus did this several times in ministry. He would turn to the thousands and he would say, all right, now, if you want to be my disciple, you have mm. to take up your cross and follow me daily and deny yourself. And all of a sudden, it's like he turns around. No one's there anymore yeah. because <laughs> they realize that. Yeah, crickets, because there's there's a huge cost in following Christ. And and yet, if Jesus just wanted followers, you know, just wanted people to be around him, he could have just kept doing the fish and the loaves and the miracles and the healings and mm. stuff. But at some point, Christ said, OK, now, now that I've got your attention through through having a full tummy, you got the free pizza now. Now I want to tell you what it's really all about. God loves you, and this is what it means to be a Christian. But a lot of people just want to just talk about their felt needs and talk about here's how to, you know, handle your problems and here's how to have a happy marriage. And those are all good things. But the core issue that we have to face is our desperate problem of sin before God Mm. and to allow Jesus Christ to address that and for us to, to look to him as our substitute on that cross and say, you paid that penalty for me. I received that by faith into my life. And now I can start a new life of discovering who I really was. And and Bruce, that was my experience. I mean, I was an unchurched person growing up. I didn't know that much about God. I grew up in the South, so I knew a little bit about God just from culture and right. from a little, little bit of church when I was a toddler. But I mean, I spent the, the vast majority of my childhood on into my teenage years, uh, just pursuing hedonism and paganism and just living for me. And uh, I got to a point in my life where my sin became very heavy on me. Mm-hmm. And God brought a person into my life that confronted me about that, not in a, in a, in a condemnation way or in yeah. a judgment way, but they became my friend. You talk about how to reach people. He became my friend. Uh, he shared common interests with me, sports and mm-hmm. music and humor and things like that. And all of a sudden I found myself a friend with a Christian. I never had a Christian friend before. And he asked me about my eternal destiny. And that's one of the things that brought me to Jesus Christ. So to answer your question, I would say, use every available tool. We podcast, TV, radio, use every book that you can find, use anything you can find to reach people. Just make sure that you do two things, that you're anchored to the truth and that you really do love and care about that person. If you do that, you're going to earn the right to be heard in their life. And even if they reject the gospel, they will know in their heart of hearts that they were loved by you and that the Hmm. gospel offer still stands for them. Yes, that's great. When you're doing all this, there must be some attacks that you get. (laughs) Yeah. What what are some of those that happen? (laughs) That's That's a good question. Well, John MacArthur has said in the past, I've heard him say, you know, the truth naturally offends people because the gospel is a threat to our old sin nature. 
It's an absolute threat. In fact, I wrote a book a few years ago called The Christian Zombie Killer's Handbook. And it's called about slaying the living dead within. I did over a hundred different churches, uh, youth retreats, and I did men's retreats and all this stuff, just talking about how do we recognize this, what the sin nature is, how it works, and how do we overcome it? How do we beat temptation? So anyway, this book was, was all about the fact that when truth, when God and the gospel come into your life, your sin nature and yourself says, whoa, here, wait a minute. I feel like you're about to take over this house. And God says, yeah, that's exactly what I want to do. And, and the cell says, well, I'm going to lock some doors here to make sure you don't get in. And so when I share the truth sometimes, not, not meaning to be offensive, but just because the truth is the truth, it naturally offends people. And they've written me emails. I've gotten anonymous postcards in the mail with hate speech on it and that type mm -hmm. of thing. But, you know, and, and even right now, you know, we're in a culture right now where hate is very prevalent in our society. Yes. And uh, I tell people, you know, you don't really have to to uh, stand up and swing a Bible across someone's face to get hated by them. You just have to stand up and say something as very basic and simple as men were made to be with women. And uh -huh. one man, one woman for life, that's kind of, that's God's standard. Or men were not meant to be, you know, in a sexual relationship with another man or a woman with a woman. Just mm -hmm. something simple like that. Or even as simple as a man is a man. You can't imagine yourself out of reality into another genetic construct, you know. Just something simple like that. I said, you will draw the absolute fire from the world and they'll crucify you in social media you get these comments and stuff and that type of thing. But here's what I always keep in mind, Bruce. Number uh -huh. one, to continue to love people. You love them regardless. But the second thing is, you know, Jesus said in John 15, he says, look, if they hated me, they're going to hate you too because right. you're following me. And people, you know, say sometimes they think, well, we just need to be more like Jesus. Well, okay, be more like Jesus. But what did they do to Jesus? They crucified him. The world hated Christ. Ultimately, now they loved him at first because he was popular, but ultimately they crucified him. And Jesus said, if you follow me, you will receive the same treatment that I receive. But just know that you're still doing my work and you're aligning yourselves with me. And that's mm -hmm. the comfort that we get is that we identify ourselves with Christ instead of identifying ourselves with the world. So, yes, that hate does come occasionally, but, you know, sometimes the encouragement does, too. Oh, good. Well, I would hope so. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what do you do to keep in awe of God in your personal life so you don't get sidetracked? What are a couple things you maybe do? Yeah. Well, for one thing, I, my job, I, I was pastor for some 30 years. And then over that time, I wrote many, many books over that time. And, and since um, uh, about you know 15 years ago, I've just been basically doing ministry, uh, you know, all across the world and podcast ministry and, and writing books and that kind of thing. Because of that, I end up getting into the word each day. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm doing something involving my relationship with Christ each day. And I learned way back in seminary not to make that an academic pursuit. In mm -hmm. other words, I didn't want it just to be a study or that type of thing. But, but when I read the Bible, when I teach the Bible, whatever, it is a spiritual experience for me. So that, that is one thing that really kind of keeps me grounded. The other thing is that my wife and I, we pray together every single morning of our mm -hmm. lives. We, we go to the Lord together. We talk about ministry. And, you know, she, I tell people she's the other two-thirds of my brain. So you know, she's <laughs> always keeping me in line, giving me suggestions and ideas and knowing things about me I don't know about myself. And so we pray together and just having someone to really have a, a prayer time with and, 
So that helps. And I've got a small circle of friends that, that I have sort of constant fellowship with. And that really keeps me in awe of God. And another thing, too, is that I think that we've lost the awe of God in our culture today. Yeah. Because um, back in, in ancient times, you just stepped outside of your house and you're just exposed to the heavens. Mm-hmm. And there's no there are no street lights. There are no you know, traffic lights or anything like that. You looked up the heavens and you see these these crystalline stars up there and you just immediately think of the creator. Yeah. And about four years ago, we moved uh, up in the Ozark Mountains and on this top of this ridge here. And it's just like that. I mean, I'll go outside many, many nights and I'll just stare at the sky and I'll just be lost in worship. And in an age where I can pick up a phone in my hand that has more technologically capabilities than than what we use to send the first spaceship to the moon, and I can access anything in the world and things that used to be like miracles, I can, you know, through the air, talk to someone that's on the other side of the world at the same time. But nothing amazes us anymore in our mm-hmm. world. Nobody is ever in awe. I mean, you go to see a magician or an illusionist and yeah. people go, wow, you know, for just a second, but then it's gone. Uh-huh. So in, in an age where nothing amazes us anymore, we have to recapture the true amazement, the true awe of God who truly is amazing. Mm. And uh, my one of my favorite passages uh, for that, Bruce, is in Isaiah chapter 40, where God just kind of walks Isaiah through a series of things about himself. And I won't go into the whole thing, but he just basically just says, hey, beginning of verse 12, there's nobody greater than me because I'm great in creation. There's no one wiser than me because I'm great in wisdom. There's no one more sovereign to me because no nation is a threat to me. There's no one that can rival me in terms of an idol or anything else. There's nobody more intimate that you can be with than than me. And it just goes on and on and on where God just says, be in awe of me. And yeah. that's one of the, another reason why the scripture is so important is because the scripture takes us on that journey into mm. the depths of the greatness of God. And truly, when we study the scripture, we have to walk away just really just kind of having stars in our eyes because we've just been so struck by the vision of who God really is in his word. So that really kind of keeps me grounded and not just the nature thing, but just getting into the word and contemplating and meditating on how great God is to think about the fact that there's, you know, some 10 billion stars in our universe or something like that. And yeah. and uh, there's some 10 billion galaxies like our galaxy, and we can't find the end of it. So all that to say is that God is so great. He's bigger than all of this. And it reminds me of a, something a lady said to her pastor one time. Yeah. After she walked up to him after a message, she said, Pastor, you know, I, I have, have no problem giving God my big problems, but telling him the little things of life that bother me, the little problems, that's what I have trouble with. And the pastor just shook his head and he said, man, you, you don't understand. All of your problems are small to God. In other <laughs> words, it doesn't take any more of his power, any less of his power to, to heal you of cancer or to provide for you financially as it does for him to navigate the path of a feather that falls to the ground. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. God is amazing. He is, he is an awesome God. And those Christians that delve into those truths and really just go swimming in the depths of those truths. Those Mm -hmm. are the Christians that are captivated with the awesomeness of who our God really is. I love that. And, you know, I've said this before on, on this podcast, but it's one uh, quote that just sticks in my heart. And it was a commentator though. I can't remember who it was. Maybe you do that about the book of John. He said, John is shallow enough for a baby to wade in and deep enough for an elephant to drown. 
Yes, absolutely. And, absolutely. you know, it's got the least amount of Greek words pretty much in it, mm-hmm. the different words. And and yet you can read that every time and, and God can take me deeper and deeper into who he is and what he's like. You know, that's been my experience, Bruce. I mean, I like you said earlier, I went to Dallas Theological Seminary, one of the most difficult seminaries in the world. Spent four years there. I got my Master of Theology degree. I've been studying the Bible for over 35 years. And to this day, I still read my Bible and just go, wow, wow, <laughs> yeah. how can this be true? And mm-hmm. I mean, I've got literally every page of my Bible is marked up in some way, and yet I'm just looking for more room to, to write some more things in there because I keep learning. And that's the cool thing about God is that you never do touch the bottom. You never yeah. get to the bottom. You just yeah. have to stand on the shore and just drink in the beauty of the the sight of it all. It's like my professor, Howard Hendricks, used to say, you know, going to God's word, you can't get it all into your mind. You can't get all of God in your mind. It's like trying to put the contents of the Atlantic Ocean into a Dixie cup. You know, it just won't fit. <laughs> so you just have to take little bit, you know, little portions of it as you go and, and yet just be amazed by it all. That's great. You know, and I used to listen to tapes of Howard Hendricks. <laughs> yeah, he, was one, he was a great guy. Oh, you could just tell. It just came through in everything he said. As we kind of close up here, can you give us maybe some more ideas or little things that would help as far as at churches? What Anybody who's leading a church out there, what are some things that they can look for and things that they can do to prevent from falling in the traps that lead either to not giving people the vintage word of God or lead them into where people just think they can come up with anything they want? Yeah, well, pastors are under attack right now because there's a lot of, uh, you know, we tell young people about peer pressure. There's a lot of peer pressure at the adult level. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of, especially in a day when there's a sense of, whether it's true or not, a sense of competition among churches. It's like everybody wants their voice to be heard and churches are suffering. 80% of America's churches are under 200 members. And so we, we tend to look at those mega churches and think, well, that's the, kind of the normal. But no, no, most of them are under 200. And, and uh, on top of that, a lot of pastors are bivocational. Uh, some of them may not have been to seminary. And so it's tough mm-hmm. because they're trying to keep their budget together and trying to keep people coming to the church. And that sometimes leads to the temptation to say, well, we'll just do whatever it takes to get them in the building. But again, you have to ask yourself the question, what am I producing? Mm-hmm. I think the question that, that every pastor has to to face is the fact that one day as a minister, as a pastor, as a leader, that we will stand before God. And as James tells us, we will incur a stricter judgment than Mm -hmm. just the average person because we're responsible for people's lives, responsible for the truth. And I have to ask myself this question, and my wife and I have talked about this many times, that when I stand before God and I look back over my life, what do I want to say about my life? What do I want to say about my stewardship? In fact, uh, last week I was, uh, we I have two podcasts, and one of them is called the Prophecy Pros Podcast. I do with my buddy Todd Hampson, and we interviewed uh, Tony Evans on there, Dr. Tony Evans. And mm-hmm. I asked him that very question, you know, what do you want to be remembered for? What's your legacy? And that's exactly what every pastor has to ask himself. And, and, and what that does, we just call it, you know, forward thinking, but it's also tombstone living. You know, it's kind of like, what do you want on your tombstone, right? Yeah. And as you look back over your life, if your life were to end today, or if you'd still have 30 or 40 years left, you look back and say, what do I want to have left behind in mm-hmm. people's lives? And when I stand before God, will I be able to say with confidence, God, you gave me a testimony of your salvation in me, and you gave me the word of God, and you gave me my ministry experience. 
What did I do with those things? And I'll tell you something, Bruce, that is, that's a sobering exercise. Yeah. But what it does is that it really keeps us centered on the things that really matter. And I know even right now, there's a lot of white noise out there. There's a lot of chatter. There's a lot of stuff going on. We have to always be, be married to our message. And I, I always remember back in the nineties, I was, um, doing a wedding in Dallas, Texas at the First Baptist Church of Dallas. And I was marrying my, my former, my old uh, college roommate, marrying him to his new bride. And he said, would you mind if Dr. W.A. Criswell joined us and was a part of that ceremony? I was like, are you kidding me? I would be, I'd be <laughs> yeah. honored to have this. I called him Moses, you know, because he was just so old. But I said, yeah, that'd be great. So I had this opportunity to be with uh, W.A. kind of down underneath the church there for a while before the wedding. And and, uh, we're just talking and stuff. And I just said, Dr. Criswell, could you give me some advice as a a young minister of the gospel? Is there anything that you would tell me uh, that would really that you've learned over your entire ministry? And he put his hand on my shoulder, Bruce, and he said, he said, Jeff, just preach the word of God. He says, I know that sounds simplistic, but he says, don't allow yourself to get sidetracked on all of these issues out there in the world, whether they be social issues or just moral issues. He said, you just say to people, teach them what the gospel says, what God's Hmm. word says. He says, if you do that, you can look back on the end of your life and to be able to say, I've fought the good fight. I've won the race that God put in front of me. And so that's the temptation that we have. A lot of ministers have today. And, and I even have a lot of people come to me and just say, I can't find that kind of church with that kind of pastor who just opens the Bible, who loves us dearly and teaches us through God's word. And, you know, those are becoming harder and harder to find, uh, unfortunately. Yeah. But, um, but that's the, the world that we're living in. So we have to, those of us who do love God and love his word and who want to preach it and bring it to other people in love, we have to continue to to seek him out and to be a part of a group of people, if possible, that'll be in like of like-minded ministry. Mm-hmm. Boy, that is great advice. So simple and yet so true and powerful. Yeah. Anything else you want to say uh, before we close up? Well, I'm just very excited. You know, we look at the world around us right now, and it, and things are are really dark, Bruce. But mm-hmm. you know, I always tell people two things. You know, number one is that when you think about what God's doing in the world and even the end times kind of thing is that prophecy never breeds fear. It only builds faith. So that's one thing. And then the second thing is the darker the night, the brighter the light. So if you really want to shine for Jesus Christ, now is the golden opportunity to be able to do that, just to be be Jesus to those people, know the Jesus of the word, know the word. And uh, just remember that even though it may be hard right now, the early church faced some of the similar things that we're facing right now. And yet without, without fog machines and lights and bands and technology, they changed the world because uh-huh. they had a testimony. They had the word of God and witnessed the word of God. So when you just strip away all the trappings and all the makeup off the bride of Christ, she's still pretty beautiful as she is. And yeah. I just tell people just keep preaching that word, stay close to him. Okay. That's great. Well, God bless you. And We'll pray for your ministry and the effect, and I just appreciate you coming on the the podcast today. Bruce, it's my privilege. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks, Jeff.